This brings us into the next section. Chapter 6, verses 12 through 49 is the next section. This Jesus instructs his disciples. It's at this point that the disciples start coming into the foreground a little bit. But really not that much. In Luke's Gospels, the disciples mostly stay in the background. They're not quite the focus in his Gospel. There are ideas that Jesus' message is going to present in this new section. First, that it is the vision of the eschatological world, but is not relegated to the future. Okay, so Jesus' teachings about the apostles, them, and the crowd of disciples, the crowd of people, Jesus has this idea that he's going to start looking forward to the eschatological fulfillment of his plan, of God's plan. Now, that's a big fancy word that just means the things that will happen at the end of time. And so we know that the kingdom of God is coming in the future. It's going to bring a new age. And he's looking forward to that. He's directing towards that. But with the first point that Jesus is going to make in this section here is yes, the eschatological, the end fulfillment of everything is yet to be in the future, but he no longer sees it as just the future anymore. It's going to begin to happen now. Where the, fair, the Jews have been waiting for the complete package to happen one day, Jesus is beginning to open the package now. And they're going to begin to experience some of the blessings of the final kingdom of God now, even though there's still a definite future yet to come. And so this is a brand new idea that's beginning to develop in Jesus' ministry is that we can begin to partake, partake of that future plan now. Not fully, but partake a little bit of it now. Second, that Jesus' wisdom literature is unconventional and designed to jolt his audience and to get them thinking about a new perspective. He's not going to go with the normal structure, the nice little don't make anybody upset we don't want anybody to get mad and go home to mommy and then call back and get mad at you or whatever. He is literally going to tell parables and give wisdom literature that is meant to shake you up. It is only when we're shooken that we then begin to question what we believe that we can then be open to new ideas. And so Jesus isn't just about teaching nice little proverbs. He's also about jolting people. He's about disturbing and done right and done with love, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Third, Jesus' message is words of hope to the poor who have already experienced the beginning of the release. Fourth, Jesus is not idealizing poverty, but envisioning a world where it does not exist. That's important that even though he's going to the poor, he's not idealizing it. He's not saying that this is what you should be. He's not saying that these are the only true believers. He's saying that they're the ones who are more likely to recognize their need for God, but the ultimate goal is to do away with poverty of every form, spiritual poverty, physical poverty, mental poverty, emotional poverty, financial poverty, social status poverty, whatever it is. Fifth, the new community will catch off guard those who measure their lives by the values of the old world. And this is what makes them radical. He's bringing a new community that involves that is inclusive to all. And this is going to rock the world of the people who have defined their community by those who are in and those who are not. For Jesus, the new community is people of faith. And those who do not have faith are not a part of the new community. That's the only criteria. For the Pharisees, the new community is the healthy, the wealthy, the right gender, the right breeding, the right social status, 
the, the, the ones who have built up a lot of social ticks for themselves or scorekeeping for themselves. Or in the words of China, the ones who have a high social ranking because they've behaved correctly on cameras. There are so many criteria that determine whether you're in or not. For G's, it's repentance and faith. That's it. That's the only criteria. Chapter 6, verse 12. Now it was during this time that Jesus went to the mountain to pray, and he spent all night in prayer to God. And when morning came, he called to his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles, Simon, who was named Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, and the son of Alphas, Simon, who was called Zealot, and Judas, and son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. So now he's ready to pick his 12. And when he picks his 12, they don't fit the standard. We have poor shepherds who have not done anything with their life that is valuable in a fair say kind of a way. They're in their late 40s, and they don't have wealth and status. They haven't done anything to indebt people to their favor. They don't deserve to be a part of the new community. You've got a zealot that is literally going around and killing people, thinking that that's going to free them from the Roman Empire. But basically all he's doing is like, no, don't get me wrong, the Pharisees have no love for the Roman Empire, but they also don't love people who go and kick the hornet's nest and everybody else gets stung. And that's what the zealot is. They're not actually going in there with a flamethrower or killing the hornets. They're just kicking the nest and running away. And they don't like them. And then you've got Judas Iscariot, which has got his own agenda and is going to end up betraying Jesus. In my opinion, he betrayed Jesus to corner Jesus to force him to do something. But he still betrayed him nonetheless. And so his worldview and agenda is skewed. And then you've got a tax collector and da-da-da-da. This is the official definition of a motley crew. And we're going to see later, they don't get along with each other. I mean, you'd think you would at least pick people that would get along with each other. Come on, Jesus, if you're about love and unity and community, then you should have picked better people because you're a hypocrite with the people that you've picked. But that's the whole point. Because when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2, they become exactly that. A phenomenal community of self-sacrifice and love and unity. Not perfect. They still had their squabbles, Peter and Paul. Peter and, or Paul and Mark. I know Paul's a great man and absolutely phenomenal, but if you actually look at how many people, disputes he gets in with people, you realize, oh, he might have had a little temper here and there. So don't put him on the pedestal. He is absolutely phenomenal, essential in the kingdom of God. But he's still a sinner. So... <clears throat> So he picks his twelve. Now we come into the Sermon on the Plain. Now I know you're like, well, I thought there was a Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, but most likely Jesus gave this sermon multiple times on multiple locations. And this particular place is on a plain. So chapter 6, verse 17. Then he came down with them and stood on a level place. And a large number of his disciples had gathered along with a vast multitude from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are way up in the north. Um, if you look at the map, it's at the southernmost or the northernmost part of the map of Phoenicia, a territory that is not even controlled by the Israelites, a territory that has never been controlled by the Israelites. During the days of David and Solomon, 
They had great political influence in the territory of Phoenicia, but never really completely controlled Phoenicia, even though Phoenicia was promised to Abraham. But it was their lack of faith. So we're talking about a territory that is far north, geographically far away, but also has never been under the influence of the covenant people of God. And yet they're showing up to hear Jesus. They come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who suffered from unclean spirits were cursed, cured. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out of him and healing them all. Now, I wouldn't read Harry Potter into that. Just the idea is that when people touch him, he is God. And God is life and God is righteousness. And any part of God is life. And the idea is that they're being healed. Now, this is a different picture. Because this picture is not Jesus just kind of going to people, healing them and healing them. What we have is a very extended period of time where people are just pushing up against them and touching them and being healed. This is wholesale mass production of healing, so to speak. I don't mean to like commercialize or Amazon it, but that's the idea. This is massive. This is a massive amount of people. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you. Now he gets into the what we know as the Beatitudes. He is going to give a brand new interpretation of the law. Not a new law, but a new interpretation of the law that the Pharisees have not seen. And he's going to say this. Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when you ex- they exclude you and insult you and reject you as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in the day and jump for joy, because your reward is great in heaven. For their ancestors did the same thing to the prophets." So these are the blessings. Now, hungry and poor is used in parallel. You have to realize that he's not really probably listing several different categories of different kinds of people. Think of it more as multiple descriptors of just a whole group of people. He's not saying, oh, we got the poor here, and then we got another group of people who are hungry, and we're going to like kind of categorize them in their nice little cubbies so that we can classify them. What he's saying is, blessed are you who are oppressed who are down and out, who life hasn't given you that much. They're used synonymous of desperate need. And because they're in desperate need of life, and life doesn't come easily to them in one category or another, or for one reason or another, they see their need. People who are hungry, people who are poor, people who are oppressed, typically see that they are helpless and they need something. They don't really see themselves as self-sufficient. And that's the idea here. It's not saying exactly that the blessed are those who are poor, because we all know that many poor people do not repent and they do not have faith. Many hungry people do not repent and do not have faith. They can shake their fists at God just as much as the wealthy person does. The point is that they're more likely to see their need for something outside of themselves to save them. Therefore, they're more likely to see their need for Jesus. Therefore, they're more likely to respond than self-sufficient, self-reliant people. 
And what he's saying is if you have had nothing, one day the kingdom of God will give you everything. Not in a materialistic sense, but in a life sense. We can see that that applies very much because we know that today in America, it doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or poor, everybody's got problems. Even though people come from big houses and both parents living in the house, doesn't mean that they still cannot be physically or verbally abused or emotionally neglected or that their parents are just always at work all the time or, or all, we, we know that some of the highest drug users are actually among the wealthy. They are just as depressed, just as suicidal as other people. And in that sense, they're the poor as well. They're the poor as well. They're desperate. They're crying out for help in a different kind of a way than the financially poor. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Basically, what God is saying is that one day he will give them justice. Those who refuse to see their need for a savior and believe that their sufficiency is going to save them, those are the ones who are not included in the blessedness. It does not matter what you have. It only matters how you see your need. That's what really matters. And it matters that you don't point to what you have as why you need nothing. That's the real point. But, in some sense, the poor that he is talking about is the literal poor. Because we're used to a middle class and many, many different classes in between the poor and the middle class and the middle class and the wealthy. We live in a culture, thanks to the the American dream to a certain extent has created a spectrum of life. In the ancient world, there was a huge gap between the poor and the wealthy. The wealthy was the 1%, literally. And then everyone else was the poor. There was no middle class. The middle class won't come around until the second industrial revolution in the 1960s or 50s and 60s and 70s. But to give you an idea of how big the gap is between the poor and the wealthy, I'll give you a few statistics. And these are mind-blowing to me, actually. A denarius was a coin. A denarius was a day's worth wage. So the average wage that people earned every single day from working in the fields or a blacksmith or a tanner or, or a sheep or whatever was a denarius. That was one day's wage. So think about how much you make in one day, and that's a denarius. To put these numbers in perspective, Cicero, who was a very prominent Roman official, made 150,000 denarii per year. If you think about an average day person working 365 days, that's 365 denarii per year. Cicero, the politician, was making 150000 a year. Office holders under Augustus made 200, um, um, 200, sorry, 2,500 to 10,000 denarii per year. And the procurators like Pilate made 15,000 to 75,000 denarii per year. So we're talking about a huge gap. And then there's everybody else. And so... It is in one sense be important to realize the poor is the poor in the Gospels. 
But it's also important to realize that the poor goes beyond just the physical poor because our culture is drastically different. Our culture is drastically different. The point is that we live in a corrupt and broken society where the self-absorbed and the wicked live in great wealth and comfort, while the humble and the righteous have very little. The powers that be have built their system of marginalizing, rejecting, and oppressing those who do not measure up to their standards or are not willing to make moral compromises. Jesus can reject marginalization and expulsion because he first rejected the world that it is based on. Even today, the power have built their power on rejecting and marginalizing people and uh, using that to their own gain. That's the only way you become powerful. It's the only way you can become wealthy. You have to marginalize and reject and oppress somebody. Their entire system is based on this worldview that these group of people are not worthy because they don't cut it. Darwinism existed back then. And we do. Therefore, we deserve it and they don't. And they're less and we're great. And this is why we have what we have. Jesus is not really saying, hey, wealthy people, give all your money to the poor and everything will be great. He's not rejecting wealth. He's rejecting the worldview that wealth in the world comes, the basis of what's coming. He's rejecting the idea that certain people should be marginalized and rejected. That's what he's rejecting. He's rejecting the way that you treat people, the way that you view people. If he was truly just rejecting wealth in itself, well, this goes in the face of God making Abraham wealthy, making Jacob wealthy, giving Solomon great wealth because he could have asked for it, but he didn't, so God gave it to him, making David wealthy, even owning credit for it and saying that was not bad, telling other people to use their wealth for great gain. That's hypocritical. That's not the point. The point is, if your wealth and power comes at the expense of other people, that's what's being rejected. It's the worldview that makes most people wealthy. This is a battle of worldviews. And this is why, as a teacher, I believe that the most important thing that we need to be teaching people today in our day and age is worldviews. The most important thing is what is the worldview of the Bible? What is the worldview of the world? What is the worldview that drives certain people? Does that worldview match up with the biblical worldview? And how do I confront those worldviews? How do I analyze and critique my own worldview? How do I think? How do I view the world? How do I question the way that I view the world? It is very important for all of us, no matter how godly, no matter how much God is using us, to constantly question our own view of the world. This is what makes the difference between a very wise person and a non-wise person. And this is what Christ is challenging. And his Beatitudes has everything to do with worldviews and not just physical circumstances. And so what he's saying is those who are oppressed and reject and marginalized now and view their helplessness as a result of that and realize that they haven't been able to save themselves, that they haven't been able to fix their problems, that they can't do this through their own works and their own skills, and therefore are willing to reach out to something far greater than themselves, God, those are the blessed. Those who view the world as not something to gain, but as something that has oppressed them, 
so something greater than the world is the only thing that can save them. That's the point. Rejoice and jump for joy because your reward is great in heaven. For your ancestor did the same thing to the prophets. Now he's not saying rejoice that your life sucks. Rejoice that people are going to kill you. He says rejoice that for you this is temporary. And one day greater things will come. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your comfort already. Woe to you who are well satisfied with food now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for your ancestors did the same things to the false prophets. On the contrast, he's not saying, if you have money, woe to you, because you have no hope of anything in the future to come. What he's saying is, if your money has come and your luxury and comfort and power has come at the expense of other people, which is true of the 1%, and you have no problem with that, and you sleep well at night, then woe to you. Because the temporary 70, 80 years in this planet that you have, that's what you have. For the poor, they have all eternity of wealth and comfort. It's a mental perspective. There are wealthy people who've opened up their wealth to people. And they've made sure that their wealth has not come at the expense of other people. And they've given back into the community. God is not talking about those people. He's talking about the people who do not. Or when they do do it, they're just doing it to look good. Many people donate to charities just so they can say, look at me, I am awesome. Notice that in both of them he says, for this is exactly what they did to the prophets before you. Now what he's doing is putting you in the same category of the prophets. And he's saying that you are just as pleasing to God as the prophets. But Israel is no different than the past. This is why Nazareth hated him. Because he said that they were no different than the time period of Elijah. And Jesus continues to say this. Verse 27, But I say to you, you who are listening, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. To the person who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other as well. And from the person who takes away your coat, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks you and do not ask of your possessions back from the person who takes them away. Treat others in the same way that you would want them to treat you. Love your enemies. That's challenging no matter what status you have in life and no what time period. Pray for those who mistreat you. I remember being told when I was younger that it's really hard to hate somebody when you're praying for them. In the words of C.S. Lewis, if you don't have the love for them at that moment, then pray for it and try to act like you love them and eventually the Holy Spirit will bring the true transformation. The Holy Spirit can do amazing things in your heart if you're praying for people you don't like. Because eventually you'll begin to see the wind, the way that God does. Bless those who curse you and pray for and mistreat you. To the person who strikes you, turn the other cheek. What this doesn't really mean is just let them beat on you over and over and over again. Because at a certain point that Christ is also going to say, run away, run away, run away. The, the, the real point is, it's one, it's, I'm working on two levels. It's not really saying like, like some punk comes up out of the alley and like just clobbers you and sucker punches you in the cheek and you're just supposed to say, okay, the other one, I'm going to be like Christ. That's not the point. 
The strike in the cheek, think more like um, England, like in the 1800s and the early 1900s, where they were men of honor. They would come and take their glove off, and then they would slap you and insult you. And then they would challenge you in some kind of way. And they're, they're basically dehumanizing you publicly. It's that idea. It's, it's more of an insult to you or an offense to your character or trying to publicly shame you or devalue you in some kind of way to ruin your reputation. So it's not talking about actual physical violence necessarily, although Christ will demonstrate surrender in the face of physical violence. So I'm not arguing that it's not that either, but that's the main point. But the other thing that he's really saying is don't react, respond. The real point is not just, many of us just react. Something happens and we're like, oh! But he's saying, take the time to think about how you're going to respond. Take the time to filter your response through the kingdom God, kingdom message. That's what he's really talking about. When people insult you, when they question your reputation, when they try to assassinate your reputation, when they go after you, are you flooded with rage? Do you want to pay them back? Do you demand that their feet be cut out from underneath them somehow? Or do you take the time to surrender to the Spirit and ask, what does it look like to be Christ in this situation, this specific scenario? That's the real thing that God is saying. He's not just saying, allow yourself to be beaten on. Unless the Holy Spirit says, that's what it looks like in this scenario. What he's saying is, take the time to think about your reactions or your responses. The point is this. Daryl Box says it well. The point is the love. The point is that love involves not defending one's rights and accepting wrongs committed against one by being willing to forgive, with the additional provision that one is willing to turn around a second time and still offer help, even if that means being mistreated yet again. Love is available, vulnerable and subject to repeated mistreatment. Now there's a tension where wisdom says you are not allow yourself to be misused over and over and over again because that doesn't help people if you allow them to just milk you for all your worth. But there's also a sense where you can heap burning coals on their heads and bring them to conviction when you just keep coming back to them and loving them despite the abuse that they're giving you. And this is why it really just means being led by the Spirit. At what point is it just not beneficial for them to allow them to beat on you over and over again because this just empowers them even more and this doesn't really bring them to the brink of their brokenness? But at what point do you allow them to beat on you and keep allowing them to mistreat you and keep loving them because that's the thing that will make them realize, wow, I can't believe that you would do that. I mean, that's the story of Jim Elliot's wives. Okay, When I was in seminary, I met a guy who used to be a part of the KGB in Russia. He was in seminary with us. His, one of his jobs was to hunt Christians down the underground church and kill them. Beat them and torture them for information of other locations and then kill them and go on to the next one. And he said what actually led him to Christ was not the way that they lived, but it was the way that they died. He said he never ever had anybody in his hands that he beat on continually and yet they offered to pray for him and they offered to care for him and they asked him about his family and they asked him about his needs as he was beating on them. And that blew him away that eventually after multiple beatings over multiple years, he came to Christ. 
And there's that tension. Some of that turning the other cheek can lead to harder hearts that actually do not lead to brokenness. And at that point, you should walk away. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Other beatings allow them to realize, wow, you love me. You're, you're still there taking care of me even though I insult you all the time. You're still bringing me groceries. You're still willing to come and sit on the porch and talk to me even though I treat you like crap. I mean, the abuse can come in all different levels. But this is why it's so important to say, Spirit, only you know who the swines are and who are the children of God that are ready. What do I do in this scenario? And that's the real point. The real point is not to cling to our rights. What we think we deserve. What we've worked hard for. The real point is to empower other people into the kingdom of God. Even if that means giving up your rights. One, this is only possible if one believes that Yahweh is truly just and reward those who live this way. Without this belief, the ethical teachings of Jesus are futile and foolish since there is no hope for justice. And I think this is a valid statement um, that the only way that you can really allow people to mistreat you and walk over you and insult you and keep loving them despite that is if you really truly believe that God is just and that you're truly okay that just this is not always instantaneous. In our culture where we want justice immediately in the court systems, right off the bat, and our belief that if like that mistrial or that injustice in the court system means that everything is screwed and there's no hope and we have a corrupt country, and what are we going to do about it? It's hard to then really truly believe that there is a God that is just in the midst of injustices. That God can still be just when it's delayed. And that's hard because we are physical, instantaneous now creatures. And the only way you can truly love people despite abuse is if you really truly believe that God is taking care of you. That he's truly providing for you. That's hard. To be honest, I have a very highly developed sense of justice. And much of what I'm seeing right now in our country is very upsetting. And I want it fixed now. And I'm also not very excited to the potential future that my daughters are going to have if we keep going this route. And that's scary. And so right now, I am actually in a point of crises, not like I'm drowning crises, but a little mini crisis of what does my faith really look like now that the America that we're used to may not be here anymore. And not just for me, but for my daughters. Okay? And, and that's scary. And this is very convicting to me. Like, do I really, not just verbally, not just theologically, do I really believe that no matter what happens in this country, that I still have the ability to go out and love and be there for people and trust my daughters into the hands of the living God? That no matter what happens circumstantially to them, God is still good. And I think a lot of us are probably going to be facing that in a way that we've never faced before as Americans. That a lot of people in other countries have already dealt with. They've already worked through that. And so this is hard. But this is true trust. This is true faith. This 
is not ethical teachings. This isn't about this is right and this is wrong. If you think that Jesus is just a great ethical teacher, this contradicts all that. This doesn't make sense in an ethical sense, in a right and wrong. To, to, to keep loving somebody who should be punished, who should have consequences, that's not ethical in a purely ethics class. This is Christian. This is love. This is Christ-like. Christ is not offering you behaviorism. He's not offering you ethics. He's offering you a worldview of true love. Of true love. And this is partly where the church has gone astray. Because in many ways we were Pharisees when we were like, remember... Tell that youth group to not drink and not do drugs and, and not have sex. And I'm not saying that's okay and I'm teaching the children to do that. But we boiled everything down in Christianity to these things. To the right behavior. But at the same time, we had no problem with the way we talked badly about other political views. Or the way that we ignored a lot of poor people and a lot of needs over the years that it was really just about right thinking and right behavior and not about right action and right heart and right trust. And I'm not saying that every Christian in America was like that, but and to be honest and to be sympathetic, that's really easy for humans to fall into. Behaviorism is a lot easier than worldviews of radical love. And our sin nature already goes that route. And our sense of justice goes that route. But this is what Christ is telling us to do. What he's saying is that you offer to people without expecting anything back. You see, the law actually said that when you gave loans to people, you weren't allowed to charge interest. If that person wanted to give your money back to you and give you interest out of the love of their heart, then fine. You, you receive it. You accept it. But for you to demand that they pay you back somehow or to charge them interest because you gave them a free gift to help them, that's not love. And so what God is saying is, not only do not demand your rights constantly, not only be willing to be mistreated when other people mistreat, to love them while they're mistreating you, but it also means when people take from you, don't fight for it back. Because what you're communicating to them is that thing is more important than them. It's the way that you enter into your li their life and you say, obviously you're taking this because you're in need. How can I help you? Not you can just come into my house and have free reign because that's not godliness. But you obviously robbed me. You obviously took something from me because you see a need somehow. Something is missing in your life. How can I help you? How can I be there for you? You're, you need money. I'm going to give to you. And I'm not going to demand you to pay me back because you're obviously in need. And making you pay me back is not actually meeting your need. It's just making sure that we all have the, balance, the ledger balanced correctly in the end. And this is what God is, Christ is ultimately saying is this isn't about your rights. This isn't about immediate justice. This isn't about making sure the ledgers are all balanced all the time. This isn't about taking everybody to jail all the time. This is about realizing that most people do things because there are deep wounds in their life that they're trying to fulfill. And prison is not rehabilitation. Stepping in their lives 
and figuring out what is broken and helping them find health and life, that's rehabilitation. And that's what Christ is ultimately calling us to, to look deeper to the behavior and say, that person went out and had a bunch of affairs. That person is going out and stealing from a bunch of people. That person is bragging about all the time about how great they are. That person is da 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 Why are they doing that? There's a wound in their life that they're trying to fulfill. Does it justify their actions? Heck no. Should there be consequences? Heck yes. But it doesn't mean that I just throw them in prison and just lock them up and walk away and say, there you go. That's what you deserve. You made your bed. You lie in it. That's my default thinking. That's who I was years ago. But now you realize people do things for reasons it's mostly done out of brokenness. And the true Christian makes sure that the consequences are there. Yeah, you don't help people when you take all the consequences from them and clean up their messes. But you also don't help people when you just throw the book at them and walk away. And Christ is just asking us to enter into the life. To enter the life. And that is hard. It's so hard. Sometimes I get it right, sometimes I don't. Some areas I do well, other areas I don't. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So you remember God in the first testament when they did the golden calf? He says, I'm going to kill them all and start all over with you, Moses, because according to law, they shall die. To be completely consistent with his law, they had to die. And Moses says, God, please forgive them. And God's like, okay. I will not throw the law at them. I will stay in their life. And I will continue to work with them. And they will still accuse me of being a psychopath who only saved them to kill them. They will still try to stone you and crucify you. They will ultimately walk away completely and their bodies will all hit the floor in the wilderness. But I'll stay there. And what... Exodus chapter 32 teaches us is that God knows what the law is, but ultimately his default is forgiveness and love. And it doesn't take much to have him go to his default. Now, were there still consequences? Heck yes. But was there mercy? Yes.